This podcast is a member of the Voices of Wrestling podcasting network. Visit VoicesOfWrestling.com to hear the rest of our great podcasts, as well as show reviews, columns, opinions, and updates across the world of wrestling. To the highway, in a brand new day, gotta let it go. Welcome back to Open the Voice Gate, Rewind and Rewatch Episode 6, Mercury Rising 2010. We are members of the Voices of Wrestling Podcast Network. You can find our podcast on the Voices of Wrestling feed or on our own dedicated RSS feed as well on the podcast application and platform of your choice. I'm one of your hosts. It's your old pal, Iron Mike Spears, and I'm being joined, as always, alongside Case Lowe. Case, how are you doing today? Mike, my day is better because I'm talking to you. It's it's stressful times. There's a lot going on in my own life. I think I said the same exact thing last <laughs> week, but nothing has changed in the seven days that have uh, passed since we last recorded. It's still stressful, but I'm getting through it. I'm getting through one Dragon Gate USA show at a time. And you know, like the... The, this first Mania weekend is like such an important weekend. And then like we watch the shows and we're like messaging back and forth as we're watching the shows. And boy, I'm glad to be moving on to the uh, Toronto shows and then the road to Enter the Dragon, the first anniversary show, because this was an interesting uh, two day period for Dragon Gate USA, wouldn't you say? Well, there's there's a ton of change that happens at this time period. And I think that's an under. I, not underrated, but an under-talked about aspect of this promotion is the fact that, you know, July 2009, Gabe Sapolsky has a roster of talent. The Japanese talent at this point is roughly the same. We still see Shima, Shingo, Doi, Yoshino, Dragon Kid, and BB Hulk on pretty much every show. But an American roster that was the Young Bucks and Davey Richards and later on TJ Perkins. And at the end of this string of shows... They are all gone from the company. Brian Kendrick, another one that leaves the company after this weekend. And so we're less than a year into the promotion and somehow we're already in a rebuilding phase. And I think Mercury Rising is a much better show than Open the Ultimate Gate. Open the Ultimate Gate is the first one we've watched where I was like, "Mm, didn't like that. Didn't like a (laughs) bunch of stuff on this. Mercury Rising is very much a show represented by peaks and valleys. There's there's great stuff on this show and there's stuff that I really loathed on a number of levels. But at the end of the day, Drangate ended with a bang. I'm glad they did. And now we have, you know, just a whole bunch of stuff to get to beyond this, but I'm glad that we're here to discuss what was the first Mercury Rising event. Yeah, you, you brought up a point here that I kind of wanted to touch on before we get into the live reviews and notes because as y'all probably know, this show is 24 hours after Open the Ultimate Gate 2010, so not as much timeline stuff for us to do, So, but we do have some live reports. But you brought up a really big point about 
the uh, turnover and i remember us talking really i i think it was like episode two when we were talking about open the untouchable gate about how they had like this core of four american stars it was going to be davy richards the young bucks and then the fourth one's a little bit interchangeable granted kuma seemed like that in some instincts and then it also kind of seems like it kind of became john moxley in a lot of ways but I think those... it's really uh, re- real quick. I think it's really weird that Gran Akuma is not on these shows, right? Because he was, you know, the focal point of Kamikaze USA or what would become. Luckily, after this episode, we can stop saying what would become of Kamikaze <laughs> USA. Obviously, when you have a generational talent like John Moxley enter your life, Moxley is going to take president, and maybe Akuma's flight or what was supposed to be Akuma's flight ended up going to Moxley. I do not know, but. Akumo, the shows actually felt weirdly uh, absent, or he he felt noticeably absent on these shows, rather, just because he had played such a heavy part in the first four DGUSA shows. Right, yeah, and, and that's kind of been the, uh, one, one of the things that, that I want to touch on is just like, so Grand Akuma was pretty much like the four star, but in this weekend, Akuma is going to be back around, he's back on next weekend shows, but the Young Bucks are gone, Davey left in Chicago, uh, TJP, who's someone that only really was on these shows, but definitely was someone that seemed like could have been something around there, is gone. Brian Kendrick is gone. Uh, Paul London is mostly gone. And Jimmy Jacobs isn't going to be along for the ride as well. So it's this really feels like that this is the second era of Dragon Gate USA that we're going to get into coming out of this weekend. So unless you have anything else really to go on, I want to touch on a couple of live reports I have from... Uh, Mercury Rising 2010. Now, you said Paul London was mostly gone. The correct uh, version of that is Paul London is thankfully gone <laughs> after this weekend. I, no one's stock has been lowered as much as Paul London's uh, from this rewatch series so far, but my God, I hated what he did this weekend. It, it's funny. For me, it was Mike Quackenbush. For you, it was Paul London. <laughs> like, I did not see this necessarily happen, but it's one of the things I'm kind of enjoying out of this because. We've already had our nice four episodes of Davey, really five episodes of Davey, but now we, we, we found out people we've loathed, people we like, and now we're kind of getting a sense of the land and like how distinctly different, at least my opinions were of from the show at this time. But yeah, no, I, I thought he was back for something later on, but this is the last show of Paul London as well. So a lot of turnover happening. And the first thing I want to touch on before we get in the show review itself, because of this weekend, because it was Mania weekend coverage of between these two shows is not as dominant as i mean like we're on voices of wrestling we kind of go nuts for wrestlemania preview stuff and content stuff there were only three like name wrestling shows that were happening in phoenix outside of wwe so people were able to go there and they were able to do reports of it one of the reports was that brian alvarez went there and he did not make the friday night show because that was when ring of honor ran but he went to the uh he went to the show on the uh, 27th. So his notes were mainly the second night was the pay-per-view taping. Drew maybe about 500, which is some a number that I've seen a lot. I've never seen a solid number on this. So first night was 450. Second night was 500. They're now hoping for about 350 people per show, but this is many a weekend, so the price has gone up. Uh, they said that 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 they did a lot less than Ring of Honor, but they also were charging a lot more for tickets. So maybe it was a wash in terms of revenue made on ticket sales. The Celebrity Theater, which seats about twenty five hundred, was an awesome venue for wrestling. The only problem being that they put the ring up on the raised stage, 
and if you had front row seats you couldn't see the far side of the ring now i have only gone to like the closest thing i've gone to like wrestling in the round was when i would go to center stage for ring of honor stuff down in atlanta have you ever really been to any wrestling in the round shows because i could definitely see this be a big issue for the viewer experience I have not, and I'd, I'd really like to at some point because on camera, I think it looks outstanding. And the logistical errors that Brian Alvarez had mentioned here is something that because I have not uh, seen wrestling in the round in person, is something I had not considered. And now I suddenly understand, obviously, there's only such few venues like this in the country, but I now understand why those venues aren't run as much because this is very unfortunate. And at this time, Gabe is still offering you know, gold medallions for front row and it's not a pre-show, it's a bonus show. And let me, you know, give you merch credit and all this and that. And then to get there and to not be able to see half of the ring, basically, I, I would be very upset. I would ask to speak to the manager. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I, I, you'd have an experience speaking to the manager ring day. <laughs> uh, like Ma'am, that... I can assure you this cat is a trained professional. <laughs> well, we're still 40 episodes away from that, which was which is the perfect no- moment for the show to the series to come to a close. But it, it's something that I remember two years later at the Miami WrestleMania weekend shows, which I went to. The tickets were like more expensive, like to a level of when D or uh, when uh, PWG started to really raise their point their prices in Reseda, I didn't necessarily like see it as such a big deal because I was used to that a little bit for DG USA. But there was like a significant price difference from that around there, so I could see it being a big thing that was like maybe a detriment for it. But getting back to what Alvarez has, uh, he said a lot of people were moved either up to better seats or down to fill up seats for the cameras i know the biggest problem saturday was the lack of crowd reactions for much most of it i know that personally this was my third show in 24 hours and some fans even went to roh or dgsa friday they went head to head roh on saturday afternoon the hall of fame and then this show that would have been four in 24 hours uh his big notes on the show like he has thoughts on the matches themselves and really me and alvarez's thoughts for a lot of stuff don't necessarily match up but other than like the dg heavy stuff being the semi semi main and the main event i was pretty close to what alvarez said on this show so i i guess when we get into the, like the matches themselves it'll be worth revisiting what alvarez said because of when this was and just because of how busy of a person dave Meltzer is does not have a full review for this show he does have a full review for both uh uprising and toronto and then the uh the anniversary show, but we're still in a point. We're actually talking about this before we went on air. That there is a point where Dave Meltzer's coverage kind of goes away a little bit. So we'll be more focusing on what's happening concurrently and DG and other news sources we could find. But Dave loved the main event and gave it four and three quarters. Uh, Larry Zonka, who is someone that I always like going back to to see what his reviews were, he went four and a half on it, and then uh, and then Brian went four and a half on the main event as well. So. At least, like, the impression that you really get is that this was a show that, at least live, was as much of ebbs and flows, peaks and valleys. And for for how great the peaks of the main event were, the valley of the middle hour of the show was omnipresent as well. Uh, did you have other things you wanted to touch on before we get into the show itself? Just that I think it's worth noting that, you know, Ring of Honor was also running this weekend. We yeah. broke down the From the Ashes card on the Open the Ultimate Gate show because they ran at the same time. Phoenix Rising was the show that followed on the same day as Mercury Rising, 
interesting. They both went with, with rising names. I just now noticed that. Um, so I'm going to run down this card for you real quick. Uh, and once you hear this, you can compare it with the DG USA show as to which show, if you can put yourself in a 2010 frame, uh, state of mind, and I know that's a dangerous mindset for you, <laughs> but if you can circle back to 2010 for a second, okay. which of these shows would you go to? Opening match, ROH Phoenix Rising, Kenny Omega versus Rocky Romero. Goes to Sean Davari versus Human Tornado, Kevin Steen versus Scott Lost, an eight-man tag with the Necro Butcher, Rache Brown, and the Briscoe Brothers against Bison Smith, Claudio Castagnoli, Joey Ryan, and Prince Nana representing the Embassy. A singles match between Kenny King and Scorpio Sky. A hardcore match between Jerry Lynn and Steve Carino. Colt Cabana and El Generico tagged against the American Wolves. Hi, Davey. And in the main event, after some weird gauntlet match that even after reading a review, I did not totally understand what was going on. But the main event was a three-way between Tyler Black, Austin Aries, and Roderick Strong. So that is a very Pierce era on the West Coast ROH show, which to my knowledge, this, so this happened in the afternoon. Mercury Rising was in the evening. Boy, uh, a lot of PWG guys there. Of course, like Scott Lost is someone that... Scott Lost and Human Tornado, yeah. Yeah, a Human Tornado would retire soon after. Kenny Omega and Rocky Romero in the opener, though. Like, we can't bury the lead there. Like, what a difference a decade makes right there. Well, yeah. Two power players in the wrestling industry a decade later, and they're curtain jerking for Ring of Honor. It's incredible. It, it it's entirely wild. And do you have an attendance there for the Ring of Honor show? Like, was there any indication of how much they drew with that? Oh, you know, the cage match says nothing, but I bet a quick Google search can at least attempt to clue me in on what might have been there. And the first link I opened does not have it. So, Mike, I don't know of an attendance. Yeah, yeah. I, I did see what the two dark matches were. And some of it does not have other people on the show. But one of the matches has an awesome Andy, who I guess now wrestles as Media Noche. Oh, they were on uh, Lucha Underground? No, they weren't. It seemed like they had a very Lucha Underground-like name. And then <laughs> and then the other match. <laughs> let, let, me, let me read off for the dark six-man tag match. Johnny Goodtime, Johnny Yuma, and Mike Seidel. Friend of the show, Mike Seidel and the Rockness Monsters before they were really a thing, I think. Yeah. Uh, Johnny Goodtime and Johnny Yuma, they had a cup of tea in PWG that I really enjoyed. Johnny Yuma, also Lars only of TNA fame for a brief period. They brought him in uh, for one of the TNA X Division pay-per-views, the Destination right. X. And I remember there was Johnny Yuma, who was Lars only. And then there was Jigsaw, who was Rubik's Ru Rubik's. Yeah. That didn't sound right, but Rubik's, you know what I mean? And it's like, how do you not sign Jigsaw to that? Like Jigsaw killed it in every uh, opportunity he was given. Oh, absolutely. They should have taken him from game because at this point, he's still kind of in and out on Gabe Sapolsky promotions in 2012. And instead, they let him walk. Maybe they offer him a deal. And Mike Quackenbush wouldn't let him go because Mike Quackenbush has control issues. I do not know. That is pure speculation, allegedly. Allegedly. But man, Jigsaw could have been good in TNA, and it's a shame that didn't happen. So I'm just now, because we're in this part of the show, uh, looked up Johnny Yuma's uh, cage match. He does have a DGUSA appearance on at Revolt 2013 in Huntington Park, California. Let me tell you what this venue is called in Huntington Park, California, because this is just amazing. The Pappy Pineda, Pineda Dome. 
Mike, I am genuinely excited to talk about DGUSA Revolt 2013 because I have some takes that I don't think you're going to agree with, but I will stand oh, by them for, oh, oh, firmly. This, oh, oh, there's a story I have to tell about the show too now that I see what the main event is. We'll save that though for I guess that would be probably like episode 30 of this. If we get to Just episode... tune in in September. Just <laughs> you you'll still you won't be doing anything then. Just bookmark this podcast for September. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Just put yourself a notification that uh Case and might go to war over DGUSA Revolt 2013 <laughs> for September. Just get that marked down. But yeah, no, this is interesting. So both, I did not know that until I was reading the hours thing that there was two Ring of Honor shows, two DGUSA shows, and then just the general WWE, what WWE was doing in 2010 at that time. So really, if you were someone other than the head-to-head show, you could pretty much go see everything at this time, which is wild and so far beyond that at this point. Yeah, I mean, that's the thing. If you're in Phoenix for this weekend and you're aware of these shows existing, you know, I would be going to the DGUSA show on the first night, but why would I not double up and see as much wrestling as possible? Because it's not like there's a Kaiju Big Battle show after this, and it's not like there's a Shindy running across the street that happened to book, you know, Davey Richards in a singles match or something. Like, this is it. And you know, quite honestly, it's the way WrestleMania weekend should be. I mean, as someone who has gone to one of those midnight Kaiju Big Battle shows with Murder Brian and Brett Payne, they are something. Uh, did you see Lingerie Mudo? Like, that is actually enough of a draw to go to a show at midnight is to see Daisuke Sakamoto and Lingerie Mudo. So it was worth it. But yeah, no, very easy to navigate this weekend. And I think with all that being said, it's worth getting into Mercury Rising 2010. So let's had, do it. So we had one dark match that was not on the DVD or on the version on uh, uh, Club WWN. God, I hate that name so much. Club <laughs> WWN. It's just a terrible. It's garbage so name. hard to say. It is so just not appealing. Yeah, like you want to say WWN Club, and then you're like, no, it's Club WWN. It's like that's terrible. That's terrible. But we had one match that did not make that cut. It was a eight man tag team match. It had Chimera, aka Ricardo Rodriguez, Malachi Jackson making his last appearance i would i'm willing to argue on a dgsa show the cutler brothers brandon and dustin cutler Derek nykirk irish airborne uh dave and jake christ and the creepily named and no cage match profile for the prophet i love that as the years went on gabe would just dangle dark match opportunities and irish airborne's face and with the exception of i There's one Ring of Honor match that they worked on a show that I believe was called Generation Generation Now. Now. Yeah, Generation Now. Where Irish Airborne's like a huge part of this match, Mm -hmm. and they never get pushed after that. It's Davey, Davey Richards, man, he's still present in our minds. It's Davey, Jarrell Clark, Mr. 630, and Irish Airborne, and they defeat Aries, Jack Seidel, Matt Seidel, Jack Jack Evans, Matt Seidel, and Roderick Strong, and... You know, they work Ring of Honor for the rest of 2006 to some capacity, but that's a giant win. I mean, how many people, you know, pinned Aries and Strong right. in Ring of Honor? And then, it, you know, something must have happened. I don't know if they got hurt. I don't know if there was a dispute there, but it's just it always makes me laugh seeing Irish Airbird on these shows where it's like, oh, yeah, Gabe is aware of them. He just doesn't use them ever. Okay. I did not know until just now that Irish Airborne did a tour of Japan in 2013. With what company? Uh, DET, Kaintai Dojo, and Big Japan. 
probably linked okay. with CZW. Yeah, but. no, that's got CZW written all over it. <laughs> but yeah, no. So so we had a, a wild eight man that did not make tape. I mean, I, I I've seen enough Malachi Jackson wrestling in my life, really. So I'm, I'm okay with that. But then we get to start off with a legendary singles match, a singles match that involved two incredibly important men for the history of DGUSA. I'm talking about TJP versus Brad Allen. It went 9 minutes and 22 seconds with TJP defeating Brad Allen with a figure fourth death lock in a really fun opener. I thought that this was a lot of fun. Uh, I know we were going to have some, some stuff to talk about people in this match after this, but what are your thoughts on it before we get to that? You know, I talked in the last show about how the Horiguchi and Susumu versus the Chikara Sekigun match felt like a a TV match if DGUSA existed on TV. And to a weird extent, I think the TJP versus Brad Allen match follows suit. And yeah. we made fun of Brad Allen a few episodes ago because there is a very distinct time period of like the first six Evolve shows. And, you know, Allen had won the fray the prior night, which had gotten him onto the main show, not the pre-show, but the bonus show. He won a match on the bonus show and then made it onto the main show. And we had kind of made fun of him because he was Gabe's flavor of the month to some extent. And I got to say, he was really fun in this match. And I think part of that is just TJP historically is underrated. He's TJP has never stayed in a place long enough and has subsequently been pushed hard enough when he's in those places to really even have a case to be one of the 100 greatest wrestlers of all time. We know that's a, a frame of a frame of reference that I like to use when I'm uh, talking about wrestlers historically. Like William Regal was never pushed super hard, but you watch enough William Regal and the few opportunities he was given, and you're like, oh, that's one of that's one of the best guys to ever do it. And I'm not directly comparing TJP to William Regal. But I weirdly think they have similar career trajectories where these guys are clearly masters of the craft, and that comes through almost every time they work, but they're never really in a position to show that off for an extended period of time. I mean, the closest we got with TJP was the Cruiserweight Classic, which was phenomenal. And Mike and I were joking before we came on the air tonight about how you know, there was a, a two-day period, a 48-hour stretch after the Cruiserweight Classic where TJP felt like the biggest star in professional wrestling. And it, and it quite honestly didn't surprise me when it happened because I know how talented this guy is. He just has never been able to show it off. And this was his last DGUSA match ever, which I went back this week and, and dug up some stuff on TJP and his relationship with Gabe Sapolsky because at the time... Uh, Perkins was basically riding in the ring truck from Florida to Chicago or Philly uh, for those shows because he was working Evolve at this point, too, and was doing whatever he needed for Gabe. And the idea, at least in TJP's mind, was that Davey Richards was going to be the top American of these promotions and that TJP would kind of be the next in line. And then obviously things with Davey didn't work out. TJP felt like he deserved more money. Gabe Sapolsky, believe it or not, disagreed. And then from there, they had a falling out that lasted until 2015 when TJP came back to Evolve. It's a real shame that we lost all of this chunk of time with TJP in Dragon Gate USA because I think he would have meshed really well the more he worked with the Japanese guys. And he would have been a great focal point guy on the roster with the Americans. Yeah, and like that's something that... 
I kind of liken TJP, like his ring style particularly, to very similar to Super Shisa. And, like, that's a match that I know will never happen now that I, just thinking about, like, if things worked out, if the money was right, there was an opportunity because Super Shisa would be making appearances in DGUSA and doing some stuff around the Indies. And that didn't happen. And at the same time, I have, like, a very, like, permanent, like, mark in my head or my brain about, like, this falling out, like, that TJP was, like, did, like, a bunch of interviews talking about how he was living out of his car in Florida, and it kind of is something that when you, like, look back at it and knowing, allegedly, some of Gabe Sapolsky's uh, financial things, especially towards his wrestlers, makes sense, but it's still kind of, it's still really sad to hear, but you're like, oh, man. You watch this match against Brad Allen and TJP very much like William Regal is a good comp to throw at because I remember also like the three week period of like King Regal where like he went off air on Monday Night Raw with him and his King's Throne like and he was clearly becoming the focal point of this and then he popped positive and that was it for anything with with William Regal on the main roster. So I do think like that's kind of interesting and we did make a little bit of fun about Brad Allen but you could definitely see why Gabe was like, let's see how this guy goes. Like, let's give this guy a run. Because he was not out of place at all in this match. And I don't know if it's necessarily that TJP was able to make him work his style or that they worked a very simple big versus small match and it worked out. But I came out of this match going like, Brad Allen is not bad. For a guy his size, he was actually doing like, a lot of like flipping sentons. He did a uh, shin springboard senton, which is one of those moves you don't see a whole lot, but I love seeing a good shin springboard. And it, this has came out to be like a very perfectly fine opener. Mike, what is a shin springboard? Oh, it's when the, the, instead of like doing like the full springboard, they like do the rope bounce off the springboard and use it into a rotation. Usually it's into okay. A, a okay, so roll. we're talking about the same move. Okay, here's the thing about Brad Allen and his supposed shin springboard sent on whatever it was he does he runs towards the ropes when tjp's on the ground and looks like he's about to do a lion salt but then does a twisting sent on out of it but brad allen never grabbed the top rope no like you know how jericho does like a lion salt the plants on the middle rope grabs the top rope and then springs backwards brad allen didn't touch the top rope and it blew my mind when i saw it because he's a really big guy and the cop that i couldn't help but think of when i watched this match was i was like oh my god brad allen is dgusa's version of vordell walker where kind gabe of, yeah gabe has this guy who has size and has a certain presence to him and then can also work like of course gabe liked this guy and he he had size and then looked even bigger being in the in the ring with tjp Mike, that led me to a cage match search of what Brad Allen has been up to. Oh, I'm well uh, aware, but hit us ever with this. since this match. It's a lot of CWF Mid Atlantic, which is unfortunate. But Mike, Carolinas, yes, right. Carolina guy. There is a match on August 14th, 2015, in Winston Salem, North Carolina, where Brad oh, this is one of the Allen shows right. This is a global force wrestling show headlined by Nick Aldis versus Lance Hoyt. There's a Trevor Lee versus Andrew Everett match on this show. Tessa Blanchard versus Lady Tapa. And there is a six man tag that is Brad Allen, Vordell Walker, and Peter Casa <laughs> Wait, defeating you. Ali Akbar, Cliff, Mr. 1859 Compton, and Jason Kincaid. 
Release the tapes. I demand to see this match. Those are like that's a that's a Chikara King Atreos team right there. <laughs> Gabe's it's Gabe's pet project. Gabe's pet pod projects, yeah. And they all would. I mean, Vordell Walker never wore a singlet, but I know Brad Al Brad Attitude has. And then Peter Casa. Jesus, that is. Oh man. That it is. I'm just wrapping my it's head around. Why this. I love Global Force Wrestling because there's stuff like this out there that nobody has ever seen, and it's a damn shame. I mean, Jeff Jarrett always wins. Jeff Jarrett always wins. TJP so. won this match, though, and that he never came back to the promotion, which is a damn shame. <laughs> yep, and that and that is it, at least for this time of the show, for a talk about TJ Perkins. Uh, the next match on the show was the Chikara Gun versus Young Bucks match. This match was not listed as being on the pay-per-view, but they said they might find a way to work it in. But it was Jigsaw and Mike Quackenbush versus the Young Bucks, Nick, Matt and Nick Jackson— uh, Chikari Sakagun won in 14 minutes and 43 seconds with a finisher that now people see a lot more. It's called a strong zero, but in Chikari terms, this was a double stomp into the jig and tonic. And this was, for as much as like crap as I've like learned how much I Mike Quackenbush's wrestling does not work for me in 2020, this was like none of his really bad tendencies and just was like a really fun sprint between these two teams. What were your thoughts about it? Yeah, this was the environment that Quackenbush should be in, because this is almost a prototype for the New Japan junior tag scene that we come to know the Young Bucks in. This is not uh, some Lucha, Yave, World of Sport infused style that I think Quack just does a gross parody of. This is Quack working at American Indies match and doing basically the Young Bucks match and then having his personality be involved, which is outstanding. This is the kind of Mike Quackenbush match that I like to watch, and it just so happens he's in there with the Young Bucks, who, you know, this would be their last appearance in Dragon Gate USA until 2013, so we pause on the Young Bucks for now. We'll come back to them later in the series. I talked to someone who was involved in DG USA at the time over this past week, and I said, you know, we obviously don't have Gabe's book of DGUSA secrets, but do you have any recollection of the Young Bucks versus Speed Muscle, Yoshino and Doi, being the plan for this weekend? And the person got back to me and said that he believes the plan was to do Young Bucks versus Speed Muscle on one of these shows. But once TNA came into the mix, once the Bucks signed those contracts uh, and they knew the Bucks weren't going to be around, they pivoted and instead gave them this match where they put over Jigsaw and Quackenbush. And what I thought was a really interesting match, there's one uh, point in time where the Young Bucks are working really laterally, where they keep on taking Jigsaw and Quackenbush out of the ring, and they're kind of just working almost like floor to floor, one side to another. And it's it's only a, a minute in the match, but it was just so different. And it felt like strategy in a way that is so rarely implemented into professional wrestling matches, and I really liked that aspect of it. And I just liked this match as a whole. It was, you know, it, it's a Young Bucks match. For me, it's very digestible. I understand everything that's going on. This is still 20-year-old Nick Jackson who was doing four times as many moves as he would do now, and it's great. You know, this is a three-and-a-half-star match in my mind. Yeah, I went three-and-a-half exactly on this. <laughs> so, so, so so, we're on the same page there about this. Uh, Brian Alvarez has an interesting thing, which is really tells you how things have changed over the last decade. You, you want to hear what his uh, recap of this was? Please. 
All right, so Jigsaw and Mike Quackenbush beat the Young Bucks. This was not scheduled for the pay-per-view, but Gabe Sapolsky said it's possible it will end up on it. It was the Bucks' final show as they were doing commitment, doing it based on commitment made before signing TNA. This was long, one long choreographed high spot. It wasn't really my kind of match because the Bucks spent a lot of time looking around telegraphing where the next spot was going to happen. Very different from the polished Dragon Gate performers who know exactly where they need to be at every moment, but the fans loved it and gave it a standing ovation afterwards. That doesn't surprise me. Yeah, uh, very Alvarez, Alvarez statement. It, it's very Alvarez. I think just very of the time. I mean, we're living in an age where the WWE house style is as fast and spot oriented and, you know, quite honestly dangerous, but that's a point for another show as really any product that's ever been out there. And so I think the mainstream tastemakers, the people that are only consuming that content and maybe, maybe AEW and maybe on the off chance ring of honor or new Japan, this style has become what they watch, whether they realize it or not. And so I think it's become accepted, although television ratings would actually tell you the opposite. And 10 years ago, this was not the case. I mean, it's still, you know, I mean, when Brian Danielson signed and he, he cut the promo and opened the untouchable gate, you know, he was saying, you know, I'm not going to be able to do all the things that you guys know I can do. Half of the reason Brian Kendrick, or I guess, you know, half of Brian Kendrick's character's motivations were, you know, I was handcuffed in WWE. And while that might be especially true creatively now in the ring, you know, these guys are, are doing everything they used to be doing. I mean, Keith Lee and Donovan Dijak, who I have my own thoughts on on those matches and how I think they're just grossly inefficient, but they are having their PWG matches on WWE TV. And so it doesn't surprise me that a decade ago, Brian Alvarez was not resonating with the style that, to me, watching this now in 2020, I just felt you know relatively tame, quite honestly. I think if this match happens... Uh, you know, on AEW TV, it's just that it's just another match, but the styles were so different 10 years ago. And I don't think we factor that in as much as maybe we should. Yeah. And I think that's interesting watching this now with 2020 eyes, like seeing this and also going back and seeing like the response at the time. And maybe, maybe Gabe was right all along, you know, especially about Dragon Gate stuff, because he did seem right about that, especially in seeing the response to things like people like Young Bucks. So all right, this would feel like completely on, it would be feel like not out of place at all if this match was on Dynamite. Uh, after the match, uh, Matt did the farewell promo to talk about uh, taking spots, which, you know, as someone who has recently done a bit of a Generation Next rewatch, I'm, it is something like really remarkable to think about. Like, oh yeah, taking spots. That's a very big Gabe line there. Uh, and then there were a lot of like weird crowd cuts that happened after this, but then I realized, okay, this was all the pre-show stuff that was not going to be on the pay-per-view, but they had like a nice little farewell promo and it seemed like that they, the Young Bucks officially passed the baton as the Gaijin top team over to Mike Quackenbush and Jigsaw. We'll see how long that lasts for them. Indeed, it's it's a nice post-match promo. I think mainly just because Quackenbush doesn't do a whole lot of talking, if any. And <laughs> he it's... doesn't talk at all. Yeah, well, then that's a win right there. It, it's a it's a nice moment, and it is very clear at this point, and things would go on to change, but it feels like, especially coming out of this weekend, that Jigsaw and Quackenbush have momentum as a team. Absolutely. And that led to what was the first match on the pay-per-view, which was Shingo Takagi of Kamikaze versus Ginky Horiguchi of Warriors. 
Shingo Takagi got back on the winning track after the big thing with him and uh, John Moxley the night before as he defeated uh, Giki Horiguchi with a Maiden in Japan in 10 minutes and 7 seconds. Uh, what did you think of this match? Uh, this was the, the, this was a match that until like, I did my research for the show afterwards, I was kind of confused a little bit by this other than you know how I thought about it. Like, just like the positioning of Shingo as like the pay-per-view opener versus Giki Horiguchi was something that kind of like raised my eyebrow. What were your thoughts about this? So I really liked this match because it was it was efficient. That's the I, I know I just said that a match was inefficient. This match was efficient because it wasn't necessarily an extended squash, but it was just Shingo being better and stronger and more powerful than Genki Horiguchi. And because Horiguchi is who he is and he has the backslide from heaven at his disposal, there were moments in this match where it's was like, oh, oh, is that going to be it? And, you know, I, I bought a few of those near falls, maybe just more so for the fun of it than actually believing, but it suckered me in on that emotional level. Shingo eventually gets the win. It's the right move. It's a fun match. And I really have to compliment Gabe Sapolsky in his first year of booking DGUSA. And it, it will come up again later on in this show where I think he's doing stuff that is maybe a little under the radar in terms of his booking where it doesn't jump out at you. But it's really it, – it's just clever because Shingo and Genki Horiguchi, again, they've been in the same company. They were in the same company for 15 years they had up to this point only had four prior singles matches and only one of them would have been taped. Now, I don't know if that show ever made air or not, but if it did, it was on a Dragon Gate live show, which was uh, basically a studio wrestling show that they did for a short time. It was the uh, what, what they did after Kobe Chicken George, and it was a three-minute match that ended in a no contest. So much like BB Hulk versus Dragon Kid from Fearless, Gabe is booking first-time ever Dragon Gate matches, and he's doing them in the States, which I actually think is really cool. So I like that we're, you know, I, I think it's clouded by the fact that Dragon Kid versus Masato Yoshino was such a focal point of these first few shows, because in reality, Gabe is giving us not only high-profile Dragon Gate matches, but some first-time ever Drangate matches, which is really impressive considering what he has to work with and how often Drangate runs shows in Japan. Yeah, and I think another thing on that note is you talk about like him doing clever things, him doing booking. Like w This is like especially a thing that I think that he does well on these early shows. There's, there's a lot of not hitting you over the head, but omnipresent show-to-show -show booking. Like, Shingo Takagi was someone that was on a losing streak. He was, there's no justification for him to be in the big matches at this point because of where he is. And it made sense that, like, he, he like, dropped the falls. Like, I mean, they made a big deal about it. And then so he faces Ginky Horiguchi, who is a Dragon Gate wrestler, but he's not someone that's challenging for anything. He has, like, kind of his established role, especially in 2010. But... It made sense here, and it played into something else that, like, he's getting on the winning track, and he would figure into other things. And, like, having a match like this that doesn't happen very often, at least at this time, and just, like, a 10-minute nice opening match. I mean, I went three and a half stars on this. I enjoyed this immensely. I think Brian Alvarez, in his review, he said, like, this was just a solid wrestling match. Like, this was just a pretty good opener, and it was a good thing that, like, especially given what would happen after this match and where we'd be going to for the next hour of the show, it was nice to have this sort of match here. And then something that I don't think the crowd often gets a lot of credit for, because there was a lot of 
U.S. fan traits in this in this show, like a lot of yeah wrestling thing, which I think is one of the dumbest things. But uh, they did pop really ha- hard for the uh, backslide for Heaven Tees, and that was something I was like, okay, that's great that they had that like I know that like the True Heads have been aw- well aware of it, but for someone like who was in who was in Phoenix WrestleMania weekend, I was like, oh, there's another show here. I thought that that was kind of cool to see that at least enough of the crowd was buying into it, even if they had no any awareness of who Ginky Horiguchi was and why the backslide was such a big move for him. I thought that was pretty neat. Mike, can I talk about this next segment? I mean, I've written down everything that happens on this, but I'll I'll get I'll let you take I'll let you take the lead on this because we are entering probably one of the worst hours of DGUSA to this point. Fill in whatever blanks I miss. Okay. Yeah. But 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 here's what happened. Jimmy Jacobs comes out. I understand that. Teddy Hart then comes out with a microphone, <laughs> which is dangerous. And I talked on the last show. Look, Teddy Hart's an awful person, but I weirdly, I it's not that I think he has a place in wrestling, but while he exists in wrestling, I will give him some time of day because I am perversely entertained by what Teddy Hart does inside of a wrestling ring. Yeah, he's so a ridiculous Teddy, human being. Teddy comes out. First of all, he says he's never been seriously injured, which I believe contradicts about a hundred canceled bookings he's had. Absolutely. He says he's never been seriously injured until last night. He then pivots and says that Paul London and Brian Kendrick, he calls him Spanky, which I think is super funny. Mm-hmm. He says London and Spanky were handcuffed by WWE. Teddy Hart, on the other hand, Teddy doesn't act like a big star. He just happens to be wearing a uh, blinged out cross, uh, velour sweatpants of the sort. I mean, he looks like he could be on a Puff Daddy music video, but Teddy doesn't act like a big star. And he adds he's never been on big TV except for in Mexico, <laughs> which was so funny to me. It, it was a great line. In there. He, he mentioned retiring at 21, which, yeah, Teddy, you, you say you retire like every year. So, yeah. Retired at 21. Um, at this point, I'm like, Teddy Hart is actually a master of professional wrestling promos because he knows – exactly what to say to get a reaction and i eat it out the out of the palm of his hands he then calls himself a jedi master i don't know why but teddy hurt referred to himself as a jedi master he says he says he's injured he cannot wrestle he says he never misses matches because of injuries but he does say i miss airplanes every once in a while but He's going to pass the torch to Jimmy Jacobs. Now, what torch he's going to pass to Jimmy Jacobs, an independent wrestling veteran at this point, I do not know. Jacobs off mic says, what are you trying to say, Ted? Which (laughs) killed me. (laughs) At this point that we are about five minutes into this promo. It's that's it. That's the, it's a long rambling promo. And Jacobs looks uncomfortable because he doesn't know where he's going. I know people that have worked with Teddy Hart in a professional level. And I once asked, what's it like when Ted gets the microphone? And they're like, Oh, we don't know. We just have somebody there ringside ready to wrestle the microphone away from him. If he decides to talk too long or to go into business for himself, Jimmy Jacobs was in a very similar position where he's standing in the corner. Yeah. And the promo's going on, and the promo's going on. Teddy calls himself a Jedi Master, okay? And then <laughs> Teddy says he's going to pass the torch to Jimmy Jacobs. Jimmy Jacobs, much like myself, does not know what that means. And then finally, Brian Kendrick comes out. He says, what's the point in all this? And then uh, they banter back and forth. Eventually— Oh, you missed out on something first. Please go ahead. Uh, he talked about being in town for Stu Hart. Got a Stu Hart chant. <laughs> 
And then Jimmy Jacobs grabs the mic for a second, which I think this is like him trying to wrangle him and said, Yes, no, that's exactly what it was. Yeah, yeah, he tried to get there and he's like, Teddy, I don't know what you're saying. That those clothes are some those are some pretty crazy clothes for me to fill. And that's when Kendrick comes out. Yes, which is a great line by Jimmy Jacobs, because Jimmy Jacobs also very good at cutting promos. Yes. Kendrick comes out, he says he beat Jacobs in Chicago. He beat him last night. He says, Whoever gets pinned tonight should leave Drang at USA forever. I'm sorry, Jacob said that just for whatever reason. It didn't make sense in the moment, but I knew Kendrick was leaving, so whatever. Uh, Kendrick says he'll be 3-0 tonight, and Jacobs will be unemployed. Jack Evans eventually comes out, oh. and then oh, I, I feel like my, no- my notes went off the rails here because I was so confused. Mike, take it, take the baton and run with it. All right, so the Make It Loser leaves DGUSA. Teddy grabs the microphone again. And my next thing I write is Jesus Christ. He talks about Brett versus Sean about how uh, That's right. about how Spanky and Paul London are both Sean's kids, and however Jack Evans and him were were hearts. And although Sean and Brett squashed the beef, I I hate to admit it, I'm more of a Sean Michaels person. Sorry, Uncle Brett. And at this point, I wrote down. This is excruciating, but and then Teddy keeps on putting people over, but he does this in a way that is uniquely Teddy Hart, and that it's really kind of putting himself over, and then he refuses to shut up. Eventually, he goes and gives Brian Hendrick a hug, but then London gives him a low blow. The crowd chants for Jack, and Jack finally comes out and does some sick shit, some sick shit on the ramp. on On my notebook, I'm writing this like in a composition notebook. The Teddy Hart portion of this takes up about half of a full page. Ted's the man. I, you know, oh, when we're talking about being in the ring, I, I just, I, I wouldn't book him. I never want no would. part of him. Yeah. But if, if Ted's on a show, mm-hmm. I'm going to check it out because I know we're going to get something like this. And then unfortunately we have, the we had match. to watch the match afterwards, which I, it was, it was just such a frustrating display of from everyone involved, including Gabe Sapolsky, because I, you know, it's not his fault that Brian Kendrick was signed to TNA or was going to sign with TNA. But we just talked about how Gabe was doing some subtle things and some interesting things. And that there's a lot of booking that probably goes underappreciated in this first year of DG USA. And then he has stuff like this and this will continue in DG USA. It happened in ring of honor where every once in a while, Gabe just overbook something to just an astonishing degree. And I don't understand it. It's frustrating watching this stuff, watching decades now, decades of Gabe Sapolsky promotions and products and whatever. This was like deja vu. Like I have seen other incarnations of this and it's so frustrating. I don't understand what a, a, a segment like this does for anybody. And on top of just the bad booking, Paul London is out of shape. Brian Kendrick doesn't care. Jack Evans needs to be in the ring with people better than him. And Jimmy Jacobs is somehow the glue in this match. But, you know, he and Spanky really didn't have great chemistry. And it's just this mess of a match that uh, just after the three really fun matches that preceded it, this just sucked. I hated this. And I think, like, you you bring up the Gabe Sapolsky trope. uh, That reminds me of Belzar Galactica. This has all happened before and it will happen again. Guys, this is not the only time we'll be having something ridiculous involving stars of other company coming in and completely derailing a Dragon Gate USA show. This will be happening a lot more. Uh, this match just sucked. Uh, 
uh, as you, as listener can assume, Jimmy Jacobs tapped out Brian Kendrick in 10 minutes and 44 seconds. So this segment altogether, and there's still more stuff we'll get into it afterwards, was about 25 minutes. This was about a half hour of this. The match stank. Uh, Jack Evans is someone that I have a very complicated kind of belief in him because you're absolutely right. He needs to be in the ring with someone better than him, and especially at this time. And then he did like two years of Dragon Gate. I mean, he's the first Gaijin to hold a uh, Dragon Gate belt and then leaves and then goes to Mexico. And then I really only think like he's gotten really good since he started doing Lucha Underground, to be honest. Like other than him just doing crazy stuff and killing himself, you know? Like it's only like the last like five years where I'm like, okay, Jack Evans is someone that whenever I'm watch, I know that it's just not going to be just a spot, spot, spot he's put it together. And then you put him in this match with Paul London, who man, Paul London is someone that is like a what if for me, I feel. And oh, it's so disappointing because yeah. I think if if London is a decade later, first of all, he's probably more accepted in the WWE to begin with. But even when he eventually would get fired because he would, he, the independent landscape would be completely different. He probably wouldn't have done the high spot shoot interviews where he burned his WWE bridge. The landscape just looks completely different, but he just he is he is the test case of of wrong place, wrong time, too early. If he would have come in later, I would imagine if London is in Ring of Honor in 2006, he's probably touring Dragon Gate at some point. Oh, absolutely! Like he, like he does a shooting star press. He's in reasonably good shape. Shima would have scouted him, and he's just he's just a weird motherfucker that Shima would probably like. I, Paul, Paul London's the nicest human I've ever met. My first Ring of Honor show, Paul London was there. I was 14 years old. Paul London was the nicest human I've ever met. It's like, it's that Chris Hero merch table charm where you talk mm-hmm. to Hero for five minutes at a merch table and you're like, oh, me and Chris Hero are friends now. Like, Chris Hero loves me. It was that to the extremest degree with Paul London. I mean, he was asking me about school and, you know, my mom was there with me because my mother would take me to Ring of Honor shows, which as I grow older seems more and more insane, but she's the best, so she Mama did that. Low. Oh, the best. And it's just like, Paul One is talking my ear off, and I'm this shy kid in a Young Bucks t-shirt at a Ring of Honor show, and he's like, oh, the Young Bucks, you know, I've worked, though. They're, they're really good dudes. Jay Lethal also said the same thing. Uh, <laughs> at the time, they were not working in Ring of Honor. I think they were uh, proud I was representing. But anyways, it's like, Paul One's a weird dude who, if he comes along, forget a decade, if he comes along five years later, oh, yeah. I think he is in such a much better spot, and it's a shame that he has never been able to figure it out post-WWE. He is always a guy that looks good on the card and with the exception of the El Generico tag team and then the one Ring of Honor match that I was there in person him and Roddy he's never been able to put it together and it's really upsetting and it's one of those things that like I'm not much uh younger than Paul London I think I think he's in his mid to late 30s now I turned 34 this year but like when I was like watching him in high school because like I was there wasn't a lot of wrestling I got there. I think I've told this story before, but I got this really shitty local indie that by time on UPN and Paul Lennon would come up there and I saw Paul Lennon. There. I was like, this guy is the craziest dude ever. I love him. And then I like searched Paul London. I saw he was at ring of honor. And that's how I found out about ring of honor, 2002 and 2003. And it's just like the potential he had there. For like that, that like four year period, like through the London Kendrick team. And then nothing ever since it's just really disappointing. And like five years later, like, the only thing I'll say is his stone promos probably won't be as good as uh, Matt Riddle's stone promos. 
No, 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 no. But you know what can you what can you ask what, for? What, what can you ask for? Yeah, it's so, so. Yeah, this is to this point. I'm gonna flip through my notes right now, case. I think this is the worst match in DGUSA history at this point, if not one of the worst matches. And maybe the worst match comes on after this, but just not a good match. Uh, Post match, uh, London attacks Jacobs, and Teddy came out and hit the most hit a uh, low blow and the most bored looking pile driver ever <laughs> like he had him up there for pile driver for a good four count and he just like looks at the camera and he looks like he'd be doing any he'd rather be doing anything else rather than giving them a pile driver and that was it goodbye jimmy jacobs oh no jimmy jacobs will be around but goodbye uh uh brian kendrick goodbye paul london uh we'll see you later teddy hart okay and then after that match case, we had another in-ring promo. Do we take? This? Yeah. Do we take this well, one since you took the? Oh yeah, go go one? for it, go for it. Uh, the lights came up with Tommy already in the ring. They were playing man in the box, and obviously they couldn't have man in the box playing live. Uh, he appreciated everyone, and I think makes a joke about a person in the crowd who's French makes a homophobic joke there. 2010, Tommy Dreamer just being Tommy Dreamer, I guess. As, as I told Mike. It, I mean, the joke's obviously in poor taste. It's more offensively unfunny than anything. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it was just really shitty crowd work. Uh, but oh, yeah, the, he did He did like 10 minutes crowd work. Yeah, just just go because I've got extended Tommy Dreamer thoughts to follow. Go ahead, Okay, uh, he talks about how he apparently, and this was something that was reported, worked for Tajiri and Smash Wrestling the, the night before, flew back from Japan to L.A. in a middle seat, then he said, thank you, Tajiri. The crowd kind of popped a little bit for that. And then he talks about flying out here. He said he hasn't slept, but he said he talked to the people in the back. He says, I saw some pool with people in the back, and I was able to make this into a hardcore match. And it was very clear. It's like he told Gabe, and he, he tried to dance around the word saying that it was a hardcore match, but it was a hardcore match. He, he couldn't say Phoenix Street Fight, yeah. and I don't, I don't know why. <laughs> was WWE doing a Phoenix Street Fight that weekend? Buddy, I have no clue. Yeah. Um, l- l- let me look up. A, what WrestleMania is this, 24? 26. I don't know why I know that, but it was 26. All right. WrestleMania 26. Do they have a Phoenix Street fight go on at this WrestleMania? I don't um, even know. I've never seen this show. I, I do not know anything. I, there's a Sean versus Undertaker match, but I've never seen it. I know nothing else that's on this show. Uh, there was a no disqualification streak versus career match and a liar the bank match. That's it. Ugh, okay. I'm, I'm not going to watch that. I mean, the, we'll get into this since you've not seen the Undertaker versus Sean match. The the main event of this match was compared to which one of them was the better match of the weekend. So that's something okay. that's not like this. But yeah, so your Tommy Dreamer thoughts. Let's go. Well, first of all, it, it is true. He did work Smash two days before this show. Uh, the first Smash show, which featured a main event of Kushida versus Hajime Ohara. Oh, yeah. Is, Ray Ohara. sounds outstanding. Mm-hmm. Um. Here's the thing with Tommy Dreamer. I, I've had enough. I, res, wrestling for my entire life has been stuck in the past. I am 21 years old, which means I was born in 1999, which means ECW was on the way down when I was born. So I understand why people like Tommy Dreamer. I understand that he's important to some degree, although I think that importance is vastly overrated. In the history of professional wrestling, but it's the same reason I don't care about Attitude Era reunions. It's the same reason, to an extent, I, I you know, I don't totally care about WCW. I mean, I've, I've watched all that stuff and I like it, and I prefer WCW at their best to WWE at their best. But still, 
I was two when WCW died. And Tommy Dreamer, much like Bully Ray, much like a lot of those ECW guys, are just guys that won't go away. And Tommy Dreamer, I know people love him. He seems like a fine dude. But he has yet to make wrestling better in the 21st century. He nearly drove OVW into the ground. He did nothing worthwhile in TNA. He did nothing worthwhile. I believe he showed up in Ring of Honor, but it obviously wasn't enough for me to firmly remember that, so it obviously wasn't important. And now he's here in Dragon Gate USA, and I understand why Gabe Sapolsky, who has recently fallen madly in love with John Moxley, would want the visual of Moxley pinning Tommy Dreamer in a no-disqualifications match on his biggest weekend of the year. But first of all, Mox doesn't beat him clean. He has to use the help of Shingo Takagi and Yamato, which is annoying because John Moxley should be able to beat this fat old Tommy Dreamer easily. But even with that, I am just so sick of Tommy Dreamer and the promos and the crying and the bat. When was the last good Tommy Dreamer match? And, and it maybe sounds harsher than it should, but it's an issue that is plaguing wrestling even to this day, and this was a decade ago, that these old guys come in, these ECW guys in particular, that mean nothing in the current landscape of professional wrestling. And they are given jobs and given opportunities, and they show no track record of making the place that they work a better place. And I'll, I'm sure it's nice to be able to say on commentary that John Moxley pinned Tommy Dreamer. That's something that can get Moxley over. But having to watch him beat Tommy Dreamer was not a pleasurable experience. Now, look, I think this match was far better than the match that preceded this. I will take Moxley versus Dreamer over that tag team match any day of the week. But this was still an actively bad match, and it's frustrating to once again have to watch Tommy Dreamer be trotted out there to make some weird joke that was dated to... Just have this match. I am so sick of it, and I just don't want to watch it anymore. And this was like the archetype of a Tommy Dreamer match in 2010, like for the match that he would be having for the next uh, win at to present. Like it was exactly what he did. It was a bad match. Moxley wanted the DDT on the chair after Shingo Yamato attacked Tommy for Tommy to kick out of that attack, which, as you said, very, very uh just insulting uh it just was like tommy gets blades he gets gassed within five minutes there's some gross chair shots they go and get a trash can but then the trash can has a trash can inside of it and he it was like one of those step bins that just is ridiculous uh there was a really funny moment where they say where uh lenny had to say the action will speak for itself <laughs> and then it, it, it pans over the crowd. You can't see what's going on there, which, hey, not Lenny's fault there, but it just was kind of like a funny little thing. Uh, this is also an introduction of something with John Moxley that we'll see a lot where he has a female valet there for whatever reason, as Christina Von Erie was there. Tommy, again, being really dated, gave her a wedgie, threatened to kiss her, but then gave her a pile driver. You know, not adding anything to pro wrestling at this point. It's also funny that Lenny Leonard at least in character, doesn't know who Christina Von Eri is right, at this yeah. point. He keeps on going, that girl that's with John Boxley. It's like, what? what's the mystery here? Like, can't we also identify her? I thought it was it was not bad, but I thought it was really funny that Liddy never directly identified Christina Von Eri as herself in this match. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was almost like, to me, I feel like that Larry got a, uh, or, or 
Lenny got the direction to say, hey, uh, we're going to do this like an old ECW match because it does seem like he was doing some Joey Styles like tropes in this match. that he An- Another thing that could go away. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, which, I mean, this is... I, I do think that this match, like, I have them both at one and three-quarter stars. Like, I both think they were terrible matches, but this match, at least, like, you saw, like, the uh, we could finally stop saying uh, what would futurely become Kamikaze USA because this was the show that Kamikaze USA was formed as Shingo and Yamato came, ran in. Yamato doing this right before his Dreamgate title defense came in there. Uh, we got a dvd from shingo and i forgot what yamato did to be honest but they came in there for the attack so now we officially have the core nucleus of what will be a kamikaze usa for the next two years and that's the only good thing coming out of this match is now we can stop saying what would future what would be soon to be called kamikaze usa because now it has formed there is a promo on YouTube. If you just YouTube Kamikaze USA, it should be the first thing that comes up. It is John Moxley cutting a promo with Shingo and Yamato in what is a very poorly lit room, which I don't think was the design, but, you know, we're dealing with Gabe Sapolsky Productions. And Moxley cuts one of those like, oh, shit, he's really good. Like, he cuts one of those promos where, you know, I don't even know because I the next shows in the series are the can is the Canada double shot. I have not seen those shows. I don't know really what's coming, but my God, John Moxley feels important more so from that promo than actually defeating Tommy Dreamer. But this was a big kind of Gabe Sapolsky shining John Moxley in front of the crowd saying, look at my new toy. That is what was on display more so than even really the Drangate talent on this weekend was, you know, oh, Gabe's got a new guy, John Moxley, watch out for this guy. And sure enough, you know, it was a very effective weekend for him. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I think the best thing about the promo was the fact that uh, Shingo and Yamato do, like, basically are, are with their with John Moxley. And John Moxley's doing his normal promo. And they're, like, nodding around. And then they, they kind of go and, and they do do some lines in English. And it was very clear at that time that really they didn't know what uh, John Moxley was saying or was giving heads up on like the bullet points there. And then both of them cut promos in Japanese where John Moxley is reacting in the background. And I'm willing to guess that John Moxley knows no, no <laughs> Japanese whatsoever. It, it, Absolutely it, none. <laughs> it, but, but his reacting was great. Like it just was like a really kind of a funny, fun moment, but yeah, no, that's a, I'll include that promo in the show notes because it is kind of one of those important promos in Dragon Gate USA. And we have Kamikaze USA, which is something that, I'm glad they never have to say the group that would be soon known as Kamikaze USA anymore. Because this is a this is a happy day for me because that I always feel like I get my tongue trucked tricked over with that. Uh, so I didn't give this I didn't give uh, Brian Alvarez the star ratings on these previous matches. Uh, the tag match got one and one half, and then the hardcore match got two and a half stars from Brian Alvarez, and that leads us to the uh, first of the two main events. We got a really cool video at least on the cut that I saw, of, like, this is the Dreamgate title, and it was kind of a lot like how New Japan now shows photos of each of the champions. But this one just, like, had, like, clips of them in this, and it's like, you saw, like, oh, yeah, Jushin Thunder Liger was a former Open the Dreamgate champion. Don Fuji, former Open the Dreamgate champion. Ryo Saito, former Open the Dreamgate champion. So it was just kind of like a nice little clip that they showed before the match, because next match would be the first ever Open the Dreamgate match in, in, in the United States. As Yamada would make his first defense against Susumu Yokosuka, he would defeat Susumu Yokosuka for his V1 in his first Dream Key in 21 and 43, 21 minutes, 43 seconds with the uh, Galleria in a match that 
when it got going, this match was really, really good. I enjoyed it a whole lot. First of all, the promo package before the match, it is the best version of any of these that they've done so far. Um, it's funny. You pop for Jushin Thunder Liger. I pop for Magnitude Kishiwata when I saw him. We Big are two different Magma. people. Big I saw Magma. Kishiwata. I was like, yes, that is my guy. I miss um, Kishiwata so much. I wish you would have done GG USA stuff. I wish he was still in Dragon Gate now. I it, still to this day, the last time I saw him work, which maybe it's been a year or two now, but he could still go. As for Yamato versus Susumu, this was the most aggressively four-star match I've <laughs> ever seen. It was very clearly great, but it was the most surface-level greatness I've ever witnessed in any medium ever. It was like 21 minutes, and the first five minutes was basically Yamato goofing around, like like visibly goofing around, like joking with fans, just like screwing around. And then like the next like 60 minutes was a solid Yamato versus Susumu match. Like, it wasn't outstanding. It wasn't great. Out of this year, other than the uh, Doi title title one that he won it from, it was the best Dreamgate match of the year to date. But it just was, like, kind of there, you know? And it was, like, it really heated up. There was a top rope DVD that Yamato, like, popped out of. And there was Susumu, to his credit, I feel like, was kind of the star of this match, doing a lot of selling base around his arm and just a pretty... Just a pretty excellent job out of him. But yeah, no, this is, I went four and a quarter. Like, just because, like, I was amused by that first, like, the first five minutes of him goofing around. But this was just aggressively four stars. Like, we're the gentleman's three. This is now aggressively four stars. <laughs> uh, l- l- let me, I-, I found out what Magic Kishawada's up to. What's up? So he is not doing any shows really outside of Osaka now. Like, he was always yeah. an Osaka guy, but now he's really singing in Osaka. He was on a Dragon Gate show last year, which was one of the, like, BB Hulk's, like, kind of, like, comebacks a little bit where he showed up at Cork and Hall. But since then, he's been working uh, Dotanobori Pro, which is Kuga of uh, Osaka Pro when that split happened, when that most latest split happened. And then he's working for Osaka Pro. Like, that's pretty much what he's doing. He's doing shows in Osaka, and that's kind of what he's been up to. He did show up on uh, Hikaru Shida's Farewell to Osaka show. Good for him. And then showed up at uh, the DET Ganbari Pro shows in Osaka. Those are the only times he would have made tape. And the Kansai Pro Wrestling Collection shows, which I think are run by VKF, he was on. And a show that, like, in the main event was him, Masato Tanaka, Yuji Hino defeating Gena, uh, Kazuaki Mihara, and Shigehiro Irie. Let me read to you the semi-main event because this is a this is extremely me match. The semi-main event: Gunso Isami Kadaka, Naoki Tanasaki defeating Kabuki Kid, Kanichiro Rai, and Brother Yashi. Wow! You throw a Rai, Yashi, and Tanazaki in a match. You have Mike Spears' attention. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm gonna see if I, I, I can hunt this down. Also, Shogi's on this card. Kochi Kanemoto, Kanemoto, uh, Renamaru. Man, this is like a really fun. Habu is on the show. Got some Habu on there. Orachi. Like, this is... Oh, and you have, uh, and you have Banana Senga. Wow. Okay, so a few... Mike and I are going to enter the portion of the show briefly. Stay tuned. But briefly, where we read matches to each other. First of all, it's another one of those Gabe things where... Yamato and Susumu had only wrestled each other twice in singles matches up to this point. Right. One of them was non-televised, and one of them was Yamato still with the last name. Him as basically a young boy. So, we're you know, they've wrestled each other more and more as the years have gone on, but this is still 
a weirdly fresh match between Japanese talent, which I find to be really impressive. Absolutely. Also, I'm looking at Magnitude Kishiwata's cage match. I, I'm Great sure cage match. It's a, well, yes, it is. I'm sure I've seen him since, but I, I am pretty sure the match that I remember watching of him, other than the DG match that that happened last summer, was uh, Hubbo, which I, you know, it's I like him. A, another guy kind of wish was back. Uh, defeating Magnitude Kishiwana uh, for the Osaka Pro title on October 8th, 2017. I am 99% sure I've seen that match. I think I remember really liking it. There's a match on Christmas Eve 2017. It is Kazuhiro Tamura and Shun Skywalker defeating Magnitude Kishiwana and UT on an Osaka Pro show. I want my hands on that. For those who do not know, at least up until a certain point, uh, the disincarnation of Osaka Pro was owned by Gamma. So that's why all these DG guys there. Yeah, no, absolutely want to see this. Oh, here's another another great match that happened on the Osaka Pro 20th anniversary show. 800 people at, at Osaka Edeon 2. Good for them. Uh, Osaka Pro tag team title. Gamma and Super Dolphin defeat Magnitude Kishiwada and Takashi Yoshida. Yeah, I was just looking at that. That looks excellent, actually. And further down the card, Keizin Susumu versus Takuya Akita and Ultimate Spider Jr. Ultimate Spider Jr. is a fun person to watch in the ring. Like, Oh yeah, Super Shiz is on this card? Man, Gamma, why didn't you get people to tape your damn shows? These look awesome. Mike, we might be doing the wrong podcast. We might have to open the Osaka gate sometime soon because I have seen very little of that promotion, but I am completely fascinated by their history. Absolutely. Like, if you think Dragon Gate hit drama is something, Osaka Pro, which I think has had like four different splinters of a very small promotion, <laughs> that is, oh yeah, and it came from Michinoku Pro. So it's a splinter of a splinter that has like four other splinters. Mike, so. let's talk about this main event before people exit out of their <laughs> podcast feeds. Yeah. We thought this would be a short one, but then we, we got up on Cage Match and started remembering some guys. And I complained about Tommy Dreamer. It was a whole thing. I'm sorry the <laughs> show went so long. We, tr- we tried to do the show in under an hour. It did not work. But I think it's been super good audio, so let's keep yeah, going. Yeah, let's keep going. And we'll let's keep going and talking about one of the contenders for, at this point, best match in Dragon, Dragon Gate USA history, as this is the traditional Dragon Gate six-man tag match as World 1 ticked on Warriors. World 1 team being BB Hulk and Doyoshi Speed Muscle versus the Warriors team of Shima and his best tag team partners, as he said in Chicago. Shima, Dragon Kid, and the most popular man in Phoenix, Arizona, Gamma. Uh, uh, Yoshino got the win on Gamma in 27 minutes and 26 seconds with the sole Naciente. I went four and a half stars on this match, and that was only because there was one really big botch that pulled my, my focus away from the match, but absolutely love this match. This was a suitable heir to what became known as the Dragon Gate six-man tradition. There's a lot of different angles I want to take with this. First of all, to talk about subtle Gabe Sapolsky booking yet again, I had not realized until this match, and and yes, there was a six-man the night before that was kind of marketed as such, but those first four shows, there is not a six-man tag, which is really smart, and I had not noticed that until we hit this point that Gabe was saving this match for this weekend because it just, you know, for whatever reason, I didn't notice it, that it's all tags and singles, and then the Chikara eight-man, this is the first time we're really seeing the six-man style come into play, and it's not just a showcase match, because the entire match, 
has Dragon Kid and Masato Yoshino interactions, and their feud is not done yet. They are in the midst of battle in this match. We also get aftershocks of Hulk versus Dragon Kid, which had happened at the prior Chicago show. Like, there's just a lot of stuff happening in this match, and what is so fun about it, and what is so fun about this promotion at this time is that it doesn't have, you know, at this point, the decade of nuance and intricacy that the Dragon Gate proper company had had, but Gabe Sapolsky is following suit and having these six-man tag matches play into, into like, funnel into a bigger cause, a bigger purpose. And it's it's really nice to see that on display here, that it's not an all-star match. This match had purpose and had reasoning, and I, I'm all for it. Yeah, uh, it just was, like, a incredibly well done. While you're doing this, I was looking this up. This was another thing of Gabe booking incredibly well here. Like, as much as I'll bag on Gabe for what I think is a cardinal sin of having way too many ECW people around this promotion, that is an official Mike Spears cardinal sin of DGUSA. <laughs> we talked about Evolve as one. Having a lot of ECW people around killing the card is another one. So I think that's number two, technically, that I want to say. I'm going to keep track of these as we go through. And then at the end of the series, we'll talk about the cardinal sins and how they affected the promotion. But I went back through my notes. And Masato Yoshino and Dragon Gate USA had not dropped a fall since losing to uh, Dragon Kid in, two, in the second show. And he's won, he won both falls in the uh, three-way tag match. He defeated, he, he got the fall the night before. And he was had five straight falls, all with the Sol Naciente leading up to it, which was perfect booking, especially into the finish here. And as they're looking forward to, into the Toronto shows. Like, there were little subtle things here that... If you're watching the show, these shows like Case and I have like once a week watching a new show and doing like this, it's incredibly fulfilling booking to see, all right, so these guys are in the same unit and that is played into the post-match. But the idea of Masato Yoshino was someone that they like made comments about for like the Freedom Gate tournament that he lost too many times and he would not be put in the tournament. But then he built himself completely all the way back up and now was in and was able to rationally challenge for the Freedom Gate title, which is like the first real title offense that they did that actually has a build to in this company. I thought that that was incredibly well done here. Uh, this was just like, on this show and, and on this weekend, the Dreamgate match and the Sixman match were the only ones that came out of these shows thinking that they were big time. Did you get that impression at all? Like, these actually felt special. I, I think for sure this match did. I liked the Freedom Gate match and the way that was worked. And I liked the six man on the first night, although not as much as this. But this match in particular, just it felt like a big deal. And in a sense, I mean, it is. This is the match that the company was stylized around. The entire reason this company exists is because of the 2006 Super Card of Honor match, which in many ways changed professional wrestling. I went back today. I have watched the 2006 match recently. I've watched the 2008 match a number of times. I went back today and watched the 2007 Supercard of Honor 2-6 man just because I hadn't seen it in a long time because I wanted to do power rankings and will continue to do so for every sixth man that we come across right. in this promotion from here on out. 2006 and 2008, those are both five-star matches for different reasons. 2006 is a game-changing match on a number of levels. 2008 is just straight up the best six-man tag possible. It it gets lost in the shuffle for whatever reason, but the Muscle Outlaws, Typhoon, 
2008 six man is on another level. I would put this third place kind of, I, I went four and a half. I think if the show had a hotter crown, it would be a four and three quarters match, but right in the middle right now, um, 2007 below that and open the ultimate gate from the night before at four and a quarter as fifth place right now, but that's no small feat. Yeah. I was live at this Supercard of honor three show. Like, I'm sorry to to always like I was at that show and that was one of those matches on a card that was an insane card by the way uh that was just insane and I think personally I like that one more than 2006 I know that's like a cardinal like send for someone to say but that match was incredible also on that show that was incredible uh Hulk and Shingo versus San Erico another insane match really good incredible stuff so yeah this was just like they hit all the full speed. Like, they did a full sprint to start. Then they slowed it down. Gamma might be the first person to really use comedy in the traditional six-man match. And the crowd loved Gamma. Like, like I know like it's a meme for me at this point to say Gamma's the best wrestler in the world right now, Case. But when he did his uh, big uh, kendo stick shot and the way they saw it, the crowd popped so hard for it. And it was, like, one of the few times that watching this I felt like that it was emulated uh, Dragon Gate audience very well because that's how crowds in, Dr- in Dragon Gate react to whenever the Kendova stick spot happened. He did a fucking Poison Rana in the yes. finished thing, which is insane. Just Mike, absolutely insane. Put yourself in wrestling boots and a pair of tights for a second. You're Mike Spears. You're Iron Mike the wrestler now. All right. And, and you are being shipped off to Japan because, as we know, you are so agile. Mm-hmm. You are being shipped off to Japan. You are wrestling Cork and Hall, Dragon Gate, and you're in a match against Gamma and Dragon Kid. And you can either take the Avalanche Hurricane Rana that Dragon Kid did in this match. A reverse or, Avalanche Hurricane Rana. Yes. Or you can take... That's right. <laughs> that's right. This match was nuts, folks. Like, go your that's, way for this match. You, you could take the top rope Poison Rana from Dragon Kid, or you can take the ring-level poison rana from gamma which of those moves are you taking oh i'm taking the top rope one because that way <laughs> i because i have some distance there and i can make sure that i fall right i you are a smart man because the poison <laughs> rana from gamma scared the shit out of me it could have gone so poorly and, and this was after a moment where hulk went for a springboard spinning heel kick and basically missed it and collided into Dragon Kid, and Dragon Kid sealed the collision. Good for him. He kind of cannonballed into him. Like, it wasn't what right. Hulk was intending to do, but it also did look like it still hurt. Yeah, yeah, no, like, they, they saved that, and that that's, like, my one knock this match was. This was a big moment that they managed to make work, but Gamma, I don't know how this last year and the mental state that this year has forced upon me has made me into the world's biggest fan of Gamma, but Gamma was the MVP of this match. I mean, doing like all the things of this, because that Poison Rana, I mean, Gamma, charitably 5'5", five, 5'6", five, five, him getting up there, because he's not a small guy. He is a, uh, he is what, the, he's what the kids call dummy thick. L- 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 <laughs> like he is a uh, beefy guy doing a Poison Rana to Hulk and Hulk being 2010 BB Hulk and just dying on it was incredible stuff and then the finishing stretch is probably what i think is the hallmark of this match so unless you had any other big notes about the the match itself and bryce rensberg did a great job refereeing this match like doing everything right here dragon kid did a bermuda triangle to the elevated stage which is just demented 
to do. Like that, that that's insane. Like they had like two feet of clearance between the ring and the stage, and he did a Bermuda Triangle. But the finishing stretch is really worth getting into here. Unless you had any other notes, I, real quick, you know, Gamma was really great in this match. Yeah, I this will is not say, a bit. This is not a no, bit. No, no, no. Shima's individual performance really jumped out at me, and it weirdly, it, the same thing happened when I watched the 2007 Super Card of Honor 2 match. When the 2007 match, they're doing ring introductions, and they had flown the ring announcer from Japan over to do ring introductions yeah, for that show. Kikuchi for that one. Yeah, which I, I I just did not realize before. So. Uh, Mochizuki gets introed, gets a nice pop. Uh, Susumu gets introed, gets a nice pop. Dragon Kid gets introed, gets a nice pop. Then it goes to the other team, and it's Shingo gets a great reaction. It's um, Saito gets a good reaction. And then Shima's the last one to get introduced, and Shima gets this massive, ginormous reaction followed by being showered in streamers. And you see this look in Shima's eyes where it's like, oh, no. He's about to no-sell everything and just <laughs> dominate this match. And luckily he doesn't, like, because that's still, like, a very egotistical era Shima where something could have gone horribly wrong. Because you mean that's an like, era case? Yeah, I, I actually, I think Shima, yes, I do. I think there <laughs> are different eras of Shima's egotists. <laughs> okay, that's fair, that's but, fair, that's fair. But he gets this look in his eyes where, like, he, it's like, he absorbed and digested this reaction. I was like, oh no. <laughs> and then it ends up being okay. Here, Gamma's the one that really has the focus of the American audience, but watching Shima just go move to move to move, I was like, holy shit, man. This is this is one of the best guys to ever do it. Like, there is a reason, and personally is another story, but professionally in the ring, there is a reason that everybody that works with this guy, at least Americans, have good things to say about him because he was so on point in this match. And it's, you know, it makes sense. Shima lives for those moments, that big American audience, that featured match. Like, duh, like this is him in his element. And I thought that was really fun to see, quite honestly. Yeah, no, it's something where, like, being at the 2008 show, and seeing the reception in that match where Typhoon was was all introduced and then you had Shima being introduced and just the reaction there is it can't go without saying like I think that's something that people when they're evaluating Shima's career, especially in the Wrestling Observer Hall of Fame, don't get is at least for a period of time, he was considered a star on the level I wouldn't say Misawa and Kobashi, but he was treated very similarly, at least by Ring of Honor and American fans. Like, it was a big deal here. Uh, one one absolute last talk about a match notes. Supercard of Honor 2 in Detroit case. Here's another yeah. match on the show. Claudio Castagnoli defeats Yamato in 6 minutes and 55 seconds. I think that match is on Ring of Honor's YouTube channel as, like, one of their first uploads. I could be wrong, but I know that match was circulating online for a long time, and I think it's Ring of Honor that upped it. Um, it's like from 2007 or eight, that upload, mm -hmm. like the footage is really grainy and poor quality, but that match should be out there. Yeah. Yeah. It's just one of those things that just kind of like sticks out in my head there, but it's, oh, it's bizarre. It's a really weird match to look back on with 13 years, you know, 13 years later. Yeah. So the finishing stretch of this match, uh, it was, uh, Yoshino and Gamma. He locks Gamma into the Solnaciente and Gamma again, being on the top of it. Incredible sell there from Gamma on this. Solnaciente. Both Dragon Kid and Shima try to make the big save, but both Hulk and Doi do like insane moves with this. Hulk does a springboard dropkick. I think 
I I think that uh, Doi does the Doi does the Doi's five to Shima. It's just insane moment in this, and then eventually they they do the traditional thing where eventually uh, Gamma falls to the mat and taps out. Just incredible finish here. Brian Alvarez, however, had his his opinions on this finishing stretch. Case, go for it. All right. First off, you get four and a half stars, probably just below the level of the Friday Night American Wolves tag, but a match I can see others saying was even better. Even had a few people say it was better than Michaels and Undertaker. Just a tremendous match. My only complaint is they did a spot where Hulk was sitting on someone's shoulders on the top rope. That was Shima. And Kid gave him the giant springboard reverse Frankensteiner, uh, reverse Frankensteiner, and then did hit the Ultra Rana, and the place was jumping out of this up and down, absolutely nuts, and then Hulk kicked out. I mean, say what you will about hindsight being 2020, but my foresight was 2020 here in that I knew that nothing in the world was going to top the spot. And sure enough, the finish two minutes later came to Gamma tapping out to the submission, the Solnaciente, which got about half the reaction of the earlier spot. I don't know how it was live, but I felt like that the, that the reactions, at least on tape, were pretty similar there. I agree. This is the one match on the show that the crowd was really into the entire time, and I thought that uh, lasted from bell to bell. Oh, absolutely. So, other ratings on this match. Larry Zonka went four and a half stars on it. Dave Meltzer, in the only match he reviewed for this show when Mercury came out on a pay-per-view, gave this four and three-quarter stars. He said that it for a match of the style, you really can't ask for a better match. If anything, it was too much. So many new moves over and over. Too fast and too many, but for the most part, so solid and perfectly timed. And Dave loved the finish. I really liked the finish of Yoshino getting game in the Sol Naciente, which is the arm triangle, and Shima and Dragon Kid trying to make this save, but were cut off by spectacular moves in Doi and Hulk. The worst thing you could say about it is that there's too much and left you numb, but when it's over, it's still up there with Michaels versus Undertaker, and will likely be one of the two best bouts of the year on US pay-per-view. I will go four and three-quarter stars, and really a must-see match when it comes to the match of the year if only because it's totally unlike any other top match that will likely air on a U.S. pay-per-view show this year. So, yet again, this is a match where I think if Dave saw it in 2020 eyes, no slight when I'm saying this, this would be a five-star plus match. Yeah, I don't even think that's in question. So that was the kind of the commentariat response there. And that does it up until there is a post-match angle. Sadly, we did not get Shima asking us if we had a good time. Instead, we had... BB Hulk and Yoshino talking, where Yoshino challenged Hulk, of course, talked about it. He's now on a five-fall winning streak, and Hulk wonders if he's serious, and he accepts for Toronto. And Naruki Doi, in an all-time great move, basically acts as the commissioner during the segment, the general manager saying, like, you want this match? You want this match? Are you certain you want this match? Okay, let's have this match. Great in-ring segment to end out the show. Yeah, so the American fans start chanting Arigato, which I know Joey Bay, one, listens to the show, and two, was in the audience. I'm sure this was Joey Bay's idea of being cool, was chanting Arigato, but it sounds really lame when Americans do it. I'll just leave it at that. And then you have Yoshido challenging Hulk, and I feel bad for them because they're speaking really broken English in front of this live crowd that was kind of receptive to it and kind of not. Like it was but it like came the, across, right? 
Yeah, so it comes across it, but I'm also going, Naruki Doi speaks English. He's right there. Let him do this. Yeah. And then he finally intervenes and kills it because he's Naruki Doi. But there's two minutes where I'm like, oh my God, give Doi the microphone. Why are you guys forcing yourself to do this? Doi can do whatever you guys need to do. Like, he speaks English really well. It works out in the end. It was a fun go home segment. Yeah, and just to be clear here, like, we're not ever making commentary about, like, oh, Japanese person speaking English. That's so funny. Naruki Doi is actually just a very funny and charming person in this promo where Yoshino is very serious and Hulk's going, really? And then Naruki Doi brings it home. was a very true to Dragon Gate performance there, and I thought that that was really worth pointing out here. Yeah, just Mike and I being who we are, we will clarify every single time that we talk about Ashima, <laughs> did you enjoy the show promo, that we are not making fun of him and that we find them genuinely charming. Same thing here. Absolutely. I genuinely enjoyed it. And that's it for the Mania Weekend 2010 case. We've got through the first one. We've got another four more left. But this was a sign here. And as we talked about earlier, kind of the end of the first era of Dragon Gate USA. Indeed it is. And then from there next week, we will open the Northern Gate in a show that features the Chikara Sekigan versus Granakuma. In the debuting Akira Tozawa, John Moxley will defend his FIP World Heavyweight Championship. We will get a singles match between Jimmy Jacobs and Shima, and a singles match between Masaki Mochizuki and Naruki Doi, and then a two out of three falls singles match Dragon Kid and Masato Yoshino settle the score before a main event tag match of Shingo and Yamato of Kamikaze USA against Open the Freedom Gate champion BB Hulk and the debuting Pac. This is a show that I have absolutely zero memory of. I know you mentioned that you have not seen the show. I am really pumped looking at this show. I mean, Akira Tozawa's, I believe, first match ever in the United and then North America. This would be the start of his excursion, so, you know, that's that's incredibly my shit. We get Grand Kuma back in the mix, and Masaki Mochizuki versus Naruki Doi, that's a match for me. That's an insane match. And that match, I'm looking at the card right now, fourth from the top. Yeah. Yeah, so that's going to be the next show here. We are going to be going to the Northern Gate with that one. It will be next Monday. And yeah, it's kind of, it, this does kind of feel like a little bit of like an, maybe I'm just hammering the point home, but it does feel like that we're starting to see with these next few shows what kind of really was Dragon Gate USA coming up ahead in Canada. Yeah, no, there's a ton of new faces that are going to be on these shows uh, some that are announced ahead of time and some that show up during the show. So it's it's an exciting era. I've never seen the Canada shows. And then after that, you hit a stretch of the first anniversary and then the two other Brian Danielson shows, which I have seen all three of those shows, and I love them. So I'm looking forward to re-watching them. So we're hitting a really exciting period in the promotion. Yeah, and I think one of these shows, we I think maybe a couple of these shows, we'll be having special guests with us to review these shows as well. But I think that's going to do it for this episode of In the Voice Gate, unless you have anything else you want to add before we get out of here. Nope. My Twitter, as always, at underscore in your case. And Mike and I are both tweeting from the Open the Voice Gate account a lot more at Open Voice Gate. And I have a music podcast that I desperately wish had more listeners, the Art School Albums podcast. So check that out if you like hearing my voice. Yeah, be sure to check out that. I think Case does great work, and it was an absolute blast being on it. And a lot of different personalities show up on there as well, and you can see different sides of people that don't uh, that some of them are involved with like the internet wrestling community that don't talk about wrestling whatsoever and i think that that's really really cool uh i'm at fujihaya i'm pretty much just doing the same old thing uh 
yeah, we're really trying to, to uh, do more stuff at Open Voice Gate, especially now with all the stuff that's up on the network from the Torimon era and live tweeting match historical matches that we have watched. I know you are watching Mochizuki contra Mochizuki. I was watching Dragon Kid versus Kness, and we will probably be doing a lot more of that as Dragon Gate still goes through this period. And we will be back next week as we take the Rewind and Rewatch series to Canada for Open the Ed Northern Gate. Take care, everyone. Bet MGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at Bet MGM. Simply download the Bet MGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then, Place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Virginia today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager. Only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C.